This is Software Defined Survival, where we explore how software-defined systems are changing the business of AVIT. Today on Software Defined Survival. And so we look further down the line. So we look at Zoom. Uh, we look at things like Barco's Overture. We look at Utelogy. We look at all of these things that are pure software control systems, or we start to get into full video transmission. What happens when you don't own the full extent of the pipeline? How many clients do you have around the world where you use a VPN to get into them? Any of them in the US, that VPN access could be restricted simply because how the rules were written. Every single device that could connect to a network, uh, even if it doesn't, but if it could connect to a network, has to be shipped with a unique password or the ability to change or the requirement to change that password. So literally every IoT device uh, on the planet, uh, that, anything that's going to get sold into California. And so the question becomes whether or not, you know, how this is going to affect AV when we have thousands of devices that connect to a network in a building. Welcome to Software Defined Survival. My name is Patrick Murray, and today's guest has taken an interesting detour from the AV, from his AV career path. And uh, I'm really looking forward to speaking with him today about some of the legal issues that come up in AV integration. So please welcome to the podcast, Josh Srego. Josh, welcome. Thank you very much for having me, Patrick. I really appreciate it. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your background in AV, how you got started, and yeah, what you're up to now? Sure. Uh, the long and the short of it is, like many people, I was a musician, and I needed to find a way to make money. And so I ended up working in live sound for many, many years. Uh, eventually, I moved on to running a corporate facility for an energy utility in California, and then... I transitioned from there to working for a manufacturer, doing product support, uh, and then eventually I was running their training and consultant liaison program. Uh, after about four and a half years of that, I moved on to be working in an integrator where I served as a project manager and then eventually as the uh, head of engineering. And then after a few more years of that, uh, I went to work for TCOM, a global consulting firm here in the San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, and then after a few years of that, uh, and well, while I guess while all of this was going on, I started writing uh, for my blog, uh, soundreason.org, for AV Nation, for uh, Commercial Integrator Magazine, uh, for Sound and Communications, for a bunch of people. And one of the topics that was really, really appealing to me was... Uh, net neutrality initially. Uh, it was just this idea of when we were talking about what net neutrality was in the US and we were talking about how this would affect transportation of video signals when you talk about fast lanes and being able to reserve portions of a network, uh, how are business communications going to be affected against, say, the stream of Netflix? So for those that work later at the office, how would your video conferences be affected when you have less bandwidth available to you effectively was the question I started asking. And I dug more and more into it. And I just became absolutely fascinated by the way that tech policy was being written and how ignorant the people writing it seemed to be uh, of how technology actually worked and how the networks were utilized and how 
policies were so restrictive or limited in their scope. And eventually I sat down with a woman at the Markula Center for Applied Ethics at Santa Clara University uh, named, uh, named, uh, Arena Raisu. And she and I talked for a while and I basically said, Hey, you know, I'm just looking for partners to help me, you know, spread the message of what we're going through and figure out how to do this. And she just said, well, why don't you do it? And that was how I ended up applying to law school. And I ended up getting into law school at Santa Clara university. And I am days away from finishing my first year. So anything you hear in this podcast does not constitute legal advice, just more uh, analysis and interpretation of what I'm, uh, I'm seeing things to be. Is that the first thing they teach you is to say uh, that? Well, being a law student, I am not allowed to represent anybody. That would get me in a lot of trouble. <laughs> so yes, the first thing is this does not constitute legal advice. Cool. I, I I like, you know, the the arc, the thing about AV is, you know, as long as you work hard and you got a head on your shoulders and you know how things work, really every option is open. So I think that's pretty interesting going from a sound guy to a project manager and consultant. I, I like to hear about those kind of success stories. Um, I, I think it's really interesting that switch taking net neutrality and becoming a lawyer because of that or, or studying law because of that. Um, and, and you got to the point, right? Like there will be video signals over the internet, like we're using Zoom right now and that takes up bandwidth and how that bandwidth is handled is going to become more and more important to people in the AV industry. What, what are your thoughts on that dynamic and, and how it's kind of playing out? Like we would call this a soft codec and it's not really something we've ever, ever really needed to, to be concerned about before. So getting... Uh, taking the 2015 open internet uh, bill, um, the open internet order that the previous administration passed, uh, one of the issues with it is it, it wrote in a lot of exceptions. So what it protects technically is any traffic accessible from virtually any browser cannot be blocked, throttled, or forced to pay for paid, paid prioritization. So basically anything you can access from a web browser or from a PC. Being received well, by a web browser. Being received, being transmitted, anything you're looking at in terms of web browsing traffic. Like that's what the, the order protects. And okay. then when you dive into it further, there's a bunch of exceptions as to what it doesn't protect, like health monitors. Uh, it doesn't protect other devices like or other systems. Uh, one of the things that it specifically excludes is VPNs. And... Hmm. I started to look at all of these things and I started to say, uh, I actually ended up asking the FCC questions to the point where they threw an attorney at me. Um, and one of the questions I asked was, you realize that you've set unfair business practices because web traffic codecs, soft codecs like we're using now are web browser based. You can log onto a web browser and use that browser in order to perform these communications. That's not how a hard codec works. It's not virtually accessible from any browser, which means that they have set an unfair business practice between the two types. And they had to agree. Uh, they couldn't, like, I, I couldn't quote anybody that I was right, but they basically had to admit that yes, because of the fact that a, a hard codec is not virtually accessible from any browser, um, they've set an unfair business practice. And this is where you start to get into the questions and the importance of it, of how are we using the technology today? And what is the policy being written? 
And so we look further down the line. So we look at Zoom. Uh, we look at things like Barco's Overture. We look at Utelogy. We look at all of these things that are pure software control systems, or we start to get into full video transmission. What happens when you don't own the full extent of the pipeline? How do you get video from point A to point B when you have to go over somebody else's pipe effectively? So if I'm trying to make a, you know, a conference call between two campuses in San Francisco and Seattle, okay, well, I don't own the entire fiber link between those. How does that data get treated? And is it fair or is it right for businesses looking to make their corporate communications to suffer just because that they don't have those, uh, those opportunities. Or when you talk about remotely servicing clients, I mean, you're, you're in Germany. How many clients do you have around the world where you use a VPN to get into them? Any of them in the U S that VPN access could be restricted simply because how the rules were written. And while it's, while the bill is dead on arrival in the Senate, right now, um, and the president has said he's going to veto it, uh, there was a bill that just passed through the House saying, we're going to restore the 2015 open internet orders. And I was one of the few people uh, at my school specifically where everybody's saying, sign the petition, we want to make this go through. And I went, no, you don't, because you don't actually know what it says, because you haven't read it. And the dangers that it presents in terms of people being able to communicate. It protects web browser traffic, but that's it. And if that's what it's limited to, then that's not a bill that really does any good for all of the other various uses. Think about autonomous vehicles. Those use a network. Those aren't accessible via any browser. And if they were, I wouldn't want that car. Uh, right. You know, those the, kinds of things that we have to be worried about. The entire IoT. Exactly. Right. Look at IoT in terms of how many billions of devices Cisco keeps telling us they're going to be by 2020 or 2021. All of those, all of that data would not be protected under the order. And so what do you do with that? How, how why, why is there now a tiered system for uh, personal use versus commercial use? And a lot of people say, well, the commercial uses can negotiate. And it's like, well, not all of them can. Small businesses aren't going to have a right to negotiate with ISPs. So why are they restricted and why are they being harmed by this? But and, do you have an answer for that why? Was it intentional? Was it an oversight? Could it be amended? Uh, it could be amended. It could be fixed. And that's the thing is, is one of the problems when you're writing a legislation like this is that you have to find a line in the sand where you're willing to say, I, I can only get so much. Mm. And I don't think, uh, to turn ISPs into, into a utility to begin with, make them a t uh, part of the Title II world, was going to create enough of a headache. So to then go after them and say that all data had to be protected was going to be a lot more problematic. Uh, and by that you mean making it really a public service like... Correct. Turning it into, yeah. yeah, turning it into phone systems effectively okay. where it's like, well, you have to treat every single phone call, every, no matter what happens, exactly the same. And that just was going to be a problem. And they were never going to get that through. And so they started carving out exceptions to this where they said, well, maybe this, there isn't this much data that we need to worry about. And these are different kinds of services and uh, they should be, you know, they should be treated slightly differently because they're a different kind of service. And I mean, I can't answer 
why they made the decision and drew the distinction that they did. None of that has ever been published mm -hmm. uh, because originally there was a, I think the original bill was 350 some odd, 60 some odd pages and the published bill was 317 and we have no idea what got carved out in between. Hmm. You, know, you know, the browser just sounds like an easy target to draw that line in the sand. And if you're not really familiar with all the other applications, if you think of internet, you think of a web browser and you don't really realize all the other things that are going on. It sounds like it could have just been an oversight or somebody actually said, you know, this is a big can of worms and can make things really complicated and yeah. put the whole bill in jeopardy probably. Exactly. And that's more than likely what happened. Like I wouldn't doubt if they just said, well, let's just protect browser traffic because, you know, people having access to the internet is the thing we're most interested in protecting, not necessarily how the internet is fully used in all of its aspects. So do you have any practical examples of how this actually affects a, a project or an installation? Uh, in terms of the VPN would be my, my biggest one. Um, I can't say that state that this has ever happened. No one's ever told me it's happened. But if without protections, imagine logging into a VPN and having your VPN data throttled while you're trying to do a firmware update to a matrix and eventually the, the, it's throttled to the point where the network disconnects. Um, and of course, in the middle of a firmware update, when you're on a VPN, uh, if you try and get back into that device, you're not going to because oftentimes that if you don't can't get that firmware update, it's gonna lock up. And that means that you now have to roll a truck out to a remote location. So what you were trying to do simply by providing a remote service to your client to save them time and make sure that they had updated systems and make sure that they were well taken care of is now restricted because you're limited in the capacity that you can support them remotely based on what the network traffic is going to be. And given the fact that network traffic quintuples around five o'clock in every region when people get home for Netflix, YouTube, Hulu, and every other streaming service that they're using these days, well, that means that your access to that traffic when on in the off hours, when a lot of times we do these kinds of updates becomes restricted. And that's, that's what we're facing right now in because of the way the policies are, uh, have unfolded in the U.S. Right. And with the move to everything as a service and maintenance contracts, SLAs become an issue. And I'm always curious about how an SLA works when you're depending on a third party to actually be your infrastructure. And the internet is perfect for this. But even if you're using like a, a software application to monitor something, if it's being delivered by a third party and you have an SLA directly, an integrator with an end user, for example, that's kind of a tricky business. And what I've heard some procurement officers tell me is, well, then you just make an exception for that. So if you're relying on Amazon to deliver a service, then it's an exclusion in your SLA that if their system goes down, you're not responsible for it. And that's a big part of what the AV industry is finally starting to come to a head with is looking at how the IT world has written its contracts and starting to need to adapt uh, their contracts in order to take that into account as to what their limitations are and at what point they no longer have ownership. Because, you know, up until a few years ago, really, uh, and even now, primarily, we still contain, we still have ownership over complete systems. Yeah. Uh, we can walk on site and still have ownership. But when you start doing full software and you start doing as much remote support as we're trying to do now and starting to move into that space, 
it's a lot more difficult to have ownership because you're reliant on an ISP of some kind, uh, if not multiples, because the ISPs only cover uh, finite regions. I mean, if you're trying to go from, let's say, Philly to New York, you're dealing with at least two different ISPs because, you know, Verizon is the New York, uh, the primary New York ISP and Comcast is the primary Philadelphia ISP. And so you have to have that exchange between those two be handled properly. Uh, and right now it's not. Yeah. And, and the software as well. Like if Zoom is part of your, uh, Zoom room is part of your um, offer, your maintenance contract, your AV as a service, then you're relying on that third party as well. So mm-hmm. whereas in the past we used to install a rack, make some drawings and deliver it. And really the expectation was 100% uptime. We're in a place now where that's kind of impossible to offer. So instead of writing these functional specifications, I, it looks like the legal contracts are going to be much more important moving forward. That is my hope, because in two years when this really hits the fan, I, I hope to be very well employed by the industry, helping them modify their contracts to adapt to this new way of doing things. Interesting. All right. So let's shift gears a little. Um, We first started talking to each other again on the internet because of one of your posts about this new law in California. Can you uh, give us a brief overview of that? Sure. The new California password law. And effectively what California decided to do was protect its citizens uh, under the Consumer, uh, Consumer Protections Act and say, if you are selling a product that is that can be connected to a network directly or indirectly, has an IP address or has a Bluetooth address, it can no longer ship with a default password. So you can't just send it out with admin and password. You have to have a unique password for each device. Or if you do ship it with a default password, prior to first use, it has to force you to change the password. So that means that every single device that could connect to a network, uh, even if it doesn't, but if it could connect to a network or uh, does connect to a network, has to be shipped with a unique password or the ability to change or the requirement to change that password. So literally every IoT device uh, on the planet, (laughs) anything that's going to get sold into California. And so the question becomes whether or not you know, how this is going to affect AV when we have thousands of devices that connect to a network in a building. Yeah, this is really fascinating. I've been thinking about this one a lot. So in, in our case, it's really anything with a network jack, um, right? Or a Bluetooth. Uh, well, Bluetooth, of course. Uh, we mostly see things with network ports that operate on port 23. You know, it's Telnet. There's no login available at all on, on many, many AV devices. It's getting better. It's changing. But for the most part, you just could walk in, plug into the network, and you know if you have the software or you know the codes, you could start controlling the device. So again, this is another one of those changes that is happening in AV that we really are not, I don't think we're prepared to handle it. From, from So there's different perspectives. There's different ways to look at it. From the manufacturer's perspective, they need to make that login possible. And then incorporate all the things you were talking about, like blocking people out until the password is changed. So those are tasks that need to be accounted for in some kind of project specification, right? Somebody actually needs to do that. It takes time. It needs to be sure that it's, you need to make sure it's getting done. But also from the integrator side, it's like, how are you going to manage those passwords? How are you going to 
communicate those things. So it adds this new layer of management complexity that we've never had to deal with at all. We've always just had Excel lists with IP addresses and you could email them or put them in a Dropbox. Uh, yeah. And then you also, uh, the bigger one that I, I stare at is the cost of the projects just went up as well because the cost of labor. So, you know, previously you could send somebody into a room, uh, you could send any tech, just about any technician into a room with an extra on button panel, a display and an input on a wall and have them set that room up, program that room, no big deal. But now if that password has to get managed and they have to log into that device, yeah. uh, you know, or they have to, or in order to create universal control uh, over over a system, potentially, if you want to have the same password on all of the devices around the building, you may have to log into it two or three times, depending on who's going to touch it, whether or not it's whether because you log into it the first time to set it up as you if it has a unique password and you change the password to uh, a more global password, and then you have to log into it again to make sure that that device is being configured on your global management software. And then you, of course, you run multiple tests. And so you're, you're having to touch these devices more and more, which just runs up your labor costs. Yeah. That's kind of one of the points I was getting at. I, I see that being um, something definitely new to AV integration that uh, I wonder if it's really on consultants radar to, to write it in the spec or even end users, if, if they're aware of these things that, you know, why is it getting more expensive? Things are supposed to be getting cheaper. I, I've tried. I know it's on Avix's radar. I know it's on, um, I know it's on certain consultant firms radar, uh, TCOM specifically because I've raised the issue with them. Uh, and I know it's on, I know, I know I've published at least one article about it and have talked about it a fair amount. Um, and basically I'm just trying to raise awareness of this coming and I know manufacturers are taking steps. Um, I know certain manufacturers are saying, you know, okay, well, we're just going to use the serial number of the device as the new password. And it's like, okay, well, that's not a great idea, but it's better than, you know, it meets the, the law. It meets the requirements of the law. Um, and that's, that's really all they have to do is meet the requirements of the law. So, you know, the other thing is manufacturers could just take the risk and say, well, we're not going to do anything. Uh, and we're just going to wait and see if we get sued. And, and that's fine. I mean, they can, there's nothing that prevents them from doing that, but you know, the potential damages that could come from that, um, both from the fact that they're not willing to comply with these laws as reputational damage in the industry. And then of course, any actual damages from a lawsuit could be uh, pretty significant considering that most of these companies are not, you know, they're not Googles, they're not Amazons. They're not, you know, they need to be wary of these things. And this is, it's such a small thing and it's only in California. And I know there were a lot of people that took issue with this of saying, well, why doesn't California just teach its residents how to change their passwords? And it's like, <laughs> cause not every device gives you that ability. Number one, let's start there. <laughs> sure. And, and that's the bigger, I think that's the bigger thing in this law is it forces manufacturers to give you the ability because not a lot of these consumer devices, which is why this law was written, uh, don't give you the ch- don't give you the opportunity to change the password. There, there's no you log into the device and it's just on. That's it. There's there's nothing else. Yeah. And they don't there's there's no settings menu. There's nothing deeper for you to change any information in it. Yeah. It doesn't exist. And that's what they're trying to protect against is these 
you know, people that are really getting into all these smart home devices that just want to throw a device on their network, but it leaves, but if they've never changed the default uh, username and password for their network switch or don't, you know, update the router or are completely reliant on Comcast to do these things, they're just, they're throwing things up on a potentially completely open network that just leave themselves susceptible to hacking, uh, identity theft and all sorts of other problems. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with that aspect of it for um, consumers. It, it's definitely a great thing, especially in residential. What bothers me about this law is that it, it does assume that everything with a network jack will be connected to the internet or does pre- present some kind of a, uh, a danger that needs to be protected. And that's not really the case with AV systems. You can dev- design a network and have devices that are unauthenticated with no login on that network, and then you protect that network itself. And there, there are practices where uh, uh, you could do that. And because they're assuming that anything with a network jack is, is connected to the network, it is vulnerable. It, it adds all these extra tasks that we need to, uh, to, to perform. And, it, it, you know, it, it will force people to do the right thing if they follow it. Like you're saying, meet that minimum requirement. Then you're at least doing something better than nothing. But it also takes away the option of treating groups of devices um, as one security task instead of having to touch every single one. And yes and no. I mean, there's a certain amount of, again, if, if the manufacturers are smart and, and the best way that I've seen to do this is ship, keep shipping with a default password, just keep doing it, but force the password to be changed. However, what it would best be done is the way that it would be, be it best to be done is through the global a global change. So you literally work you know you workshop your system in the office or uh, and you set it up there and you, you set up all the password information locally in your office prior to ever even getting it on site. You b- literally just build your system, and I mean that's not necessarily feasible for every single system we're going to do, but a lot of them it is, and that. And using a global management software to do that would be a much more efficient and practical way to go about it rather than giving it a, you know, every device that ships, the password is the serial number kind of mentality, because that's, that's just going to add problems and tasks and more and more work because, you know, if for some reason you can't get you, you know, whoever's setting up that device forgets to change the password and they leave it as the serial number, it's like, okay, well, now not only have you left the password as default, but it's still the serial number of the device. And if you didn't change it with a screwdriver, somebody can pull that off the wall, look at the back of it and get into it. Like sure. that's their physical access. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so there's still, you know, there's still a physical aspect to security that has to always be thought of as well, which, you know, sometimes people forget. Right. Well, in the end, I think the, the best thing that could come out of this is it'll just draw more attention to security, which is really it's ignored many, many times. I've seen so many projects where, you know, and I'm guilty as well. If, if I'm not told to change a password, well, it's not in the contracts. Why, why should you do it? And I go back to old projects and I'm sitting in the reception waiting to, to get into the room and there's a display there 
And I'm 99% sure that there's a network jack on that decoder device. And if I plug in my laptop to it, I'll have access to the network. And there's lots and lots of systems out there like that. So just paying attention to a network design with an eye on security, I think is one of the good things that could come out of this. Do you think it, um, it will go nationwide? Do you think this will become some kind of a standard that will get adopted? I don't think other states will adopt the law, um, mostly because California is known for uh, writing more policy than most states. Uh, I think some of the more progressive and more technologically advanced uh, states, uh, states, you know, may follow suit, just as we've had a couple of different states pass their own net neutrality bills. Um, but I don't think it'll be a, a universal issue. The problem you run into is that if you don't build the product this way, you have to keep two different stores, one that abides by the California law and one that doesn't abide by the California law. And so manufacturers, of course, are not going to do that. They're going to follow the most stringent standards, just like they do with GDPR. Um, You know, they're just going, everything is going to be built around meeting that most, the most stringent requirement out there. And leaving it at that, because trying to build, you know, 14 different variations of a single product is just not feasible, nor is it reasonable. Uh, it, it's, it's not practical for anybody to be to try and manage that. And so likely what will happen is they'll abide by the California law, which goes into effect uh, January 1st, 2020. So if they haven't started already, uh, they have, you know, seven months <laughs> to get themselves together. And uh, that's where we're going to find ourselves. Likely is that the manufacturers are going to meet the requirements and that'll be the end of it, whether or not the state forces them to change the passwords or do something differently. um, Whatever is shipped will meet the California requirement. Yeah, makes sense. So are you working on anything else interesting that you'd like to talk about? Uh. At this point in time, um, I'm hoping to start exploring some of these ideas in a little bit more depth in terms of the impacts of uh, network infrastructure as it applies to 5G deployments, public safety, uh, autonomous vehicles, and net neutrality. And start, I'm starting to you know uh, commingle both of these this legal world that I'm learning about and my technical world and, and saying, how does it, how do all these things fit together and how, how do we do a better job uh, of helping policy writers uh, do, you know, write laws that are more effective and more reasonable? And uh, how do we change that language in order to uh, meet their goals while also uh, providing the, the widest protections possible? Uh, and then I'm also starting to do a lot more contract analysis, um, starting to look at ways that I can help the industry in the long run, because that that was my goal was, you know, I saw an opportunity that wasn't being supplied. Uh, somebody who understands the AV world uh, and what we do and how we operate and and all the different aspects and nuances of what it is that this industry is that can also interpret the legal language as it applies to the new technological landscape because everything is changing and the laws are starting to finally catch up, but that doesn't mean that they're being written in the best way that, how that helps us. And so we need somebody that sort of bridged that gap and, 
that was the opportunity that I saw. And so I'm trying to figure out how to put all these tools to use uh, to best help the industry. And at the same time, you know, I'm still finishing up uh, one project with, with my uh, TCOM as the consultant, uh, which is one of the largest private public partnerships here in the U.S., uh, the UC Merced, uh, University of California Merced new campus, which was uh, 13 new buildings in four years. So uh, I've been working on that while I've been in law school as well. So you got your hands full, it sounds like. Uh, I stay busy. <laughs> nice. But uh, I like the way you were talking about, about how to navigate these things. It's, yeah, it's it's more complicated than the technology itself, the the legal aspect. And I think it will become more and more important because we're more connected now. We used to have these island systems and we really understood every single screw and connector inside that rack. We knew everything about it. And now our devices are touching other networks and there um, could be presenting openings for all sorts of mischief and, uh, and governments are taking notice of it. They're passing laws. GDPR is a great example. Some of the ones we talked about today and um, they're, could be some good opportunity there for somebody who knows both worlds to help us navigate that jungle. Well, that's, that's the end game. Uh, you know, I love it. I, I gave a lovely, uh, tearful goodbye when at Infocom last year, when I, uh, started to realize I was going to have to take a break from this because this industry has meant a lot to me for a long time. And, uh, you know, I'm looking f- and now after a year of law school and it's hard to believe it's already been a year, I am definitely looking forward to getting back and, and being a part of it and, and, you know, reinventing the way that I can, I can help, uh, help people. Cause that was, that was always my favorite part. I loved being a trainer because I loved uh, helping people find those gotcha moments and those, uh, those eureka moments. And if I can help people, you know, sort of navigate this new landscape that is completely foreign to us as we move ourselves further and further into software solutions and network solutions, then, you know, then I'm doing what I really want to be doing. That's awesome. I love the attitude. I think it's a great example of reinventing yourself. And, you know, like you were mentioning, it was sad moving away from something you knew an industry that you knew, but you know what, it's, it's changing anyway, changes here, changes, more changes coming. So things are never going to be the same and um, getting out there and educating yourself and really taking big action to embrace the changes that are coming and, and stay informed. I think that's a, could be an inspiration for a lot of people out there. So, if somebody would like to get in touch with you, how would they go about doing that? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Jay Srego. That's J-S-R-A-G-O. Uh, you can also reach out to me anytime you'd like, uh, josh.srego at gmail.com. Um, I'm happy to answer questions as these things come up. You know, while, while I can't represent you legally, I, I can definitely uh, try and help you interpret the legal language uh, of the way thing, these things are going. And I have access to one of the uh, top four uh, high-tech law universities uh, in the U.S. Uh, going to Santa Clara, so I have some interest. I have some amazing resources at my disposal to be able to ask these questions and start getting into these these bigger debates. Um, so I'm, I'm more than happy to sort of serve as a conduit if that's if that's what uh, people are looking to have. So uh, those are the best ways to get in touch with me. You can also visit my website at soundreason.org. Uh, and you can find uh, a lot of my writings. It's not really as updated as it should be these days, but um, law school takes a lot of time. 
And uh, if, uh, yeah, if there's anything else, you know, you can also find me on LinkedIn. Excellent, Josh. Thank you so much for being on the podcast and best of luck with your studies. No, thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. If you or anyone on your staff ever considered themselves just an AV programmer, join the club. That's how I used to feel. I was just an AMX programmer or just a Crestron programmer. Whatever language of your choice is, whatever it may be, there's generally this feeling in AV that we're not capable of using modern programming languages. And it simply isn't true. Sure, there's a learning curve, but once you get through it, all other languages become easier to learn and it just expands the amount of options you have when designing a system. It's not an either or decision. You don't say, I won't be using these manufacturer tools anymore. It's just, you have a broader palette to choose from. And here's what Mark Day, founder of Ideabox, had to say about his experience with the online courses at learnavprogramming.com. You know, Patrick, it's funny how the smallest things can sometimes be the start of really big ideas. Uh, Before I took the learnavprogramming.com courses, I was in that proprietary, I'm only a control system programmer kind of mindset, right? Uh, When it came to new technologies or current technologies like JavaScript or or things like that, for some reason, I thought that was different from what I'm doing. And what taking your courses flipped for me was not so much what I learned technically taking the courses. It was the mindset of, oh, wait a second, I'm already doing 99% of what some of these most modern programmers are doing. I just have to learn uh, you know, the other 1%. And that's really what I did. So it's really been kind of a big change after taking the course. Um, and I would really recommend this course to any integrator. Not only will it obviously help their skill set, but more importantly, it might change their whole mindset uh, which is more important and, and and really show them new opportunities, open the door so they kind of see problems through a different lens. Uh, I got to tell you, one of the, the biggest changes for me was as soon as I taught myself HTML, CSS, JavaScript and saw the UIs that I can make with those technologies, I, I, I just couldn't sell a uh, Crestron touch panel again. Mark is a great example of somebody who takes new information and really applies it. I know that Mark still sells a lot of Crestron equipment, but for him, for his company, for his customers, for his business, he needed a better UI. He needed another option for a user interface, and modern programming allowed him to do that. So the question is, how can you use modern programming to improve your business? Please go to learnavprogramming.com and wherever you see a sign up button, go ahead and sign up and you'll get some free information to get a feel of my learning style and what kind of information is available. And of course, it would be an honor to have you enroll in one of our courses and help you upgrade your skills and take this industry to the next level. Thanks for listening to Software Defined Survival. I hope you found it useful and maybe it inspires you to try out something new this week. If you have any questions, Go to softwaredefinedsurvival.com and click the appropriate button. I'd love to answer your questions on the air. And if you'd like to help spread the word, please subscribe, comment, and share it with your friends. Thanks. Thanks.